You, you got me just to the edge of my comfort zone with knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Hey there, my name's Lily and you're listening to Mindful Admissions, a podcast by Strive to Learn. This episode of Mindful Admissions features a special guest, college options founder and financial aid expert, Caitlin Clapper, who joined William last year to talk about building affordability into your college list. Some of the things that we talk about as counselors become obsolete as time passes. For instance, if we'd done a podcast episode on the SAT essay, it would be useless now, (laughs) given that the college board opted to slosh that section of the test earlier this year. This isn't one of those obsolete topics, however, and it's funny to listen to this recording, which was done in fall of 2020, because the content is still so relevant and true for families this year. Affordability, unless your family's circumstances are such that paying for college isn't a remote concern, will always be part of finding a good fit college match. Caitlin has had decades of experience in consulting and teaching, and we're so grateful that she took the time to share her knowledge with us. All right, I think that about covers it. Let's go to William and Caitlin. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. We appreciate you tuning in. Uh, My name is William Jackie, and I'm the academic coordinator at Strive to Learn. And I'm an independent educational, excuse me, and I'm an independent educational consultant. And um, we are talking about a very relevant uh, topic today for this time of year. For those of you who have uh, high school students who are applying to college, and that is financial aid. Um, and we're very lucky, very fortunate today to have a special guest, um, great friend of Strive to Learn, a certified educational planner, and her name is Caitlin Clapper. Um, so very, very happy to have Caitlin today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Caitlin, how is the uh, application cycle going for you so far? In this unusual Pretty year? busy for us. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, we uh, we get started pretty e- early on the East Coast, it seems. Um, a couple of Southeast universities that lots of students in the Boston area apply to, and they have October deadlines, which means that we are, um, you know, we're right up against it right now. And, um, for my students that want to come out to your side of the country, you know, we actually look forward to a little break before the UT application opens. So right. <laughs> um, that, that's our break, but we're doing, we're doing okay. Lots of questions though. It's yeah. a year full of questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Very unusual year. Um, you know, pretty unprecedented, but um, you know, that's, that's why we're here. Um, okay, so thank you so much. We'll go ahead and get started, everyone. Um, so today we're going to talk about financial aid. So this is going to be an introduction to financial aid and to affordability. Um, so let me introduce Caitlin. Caitlin Clapper has 30 years of experience working in higher education and college consulting. Uh, she's the founder of College Options LLC. She's worked on campuses of Boston University, Bentley College, and WPI. And she's been an independent educational consultant since 2005. She's an instructor in the University of California Irvine Certificate Program in the independent in ed, excuse me in independent educational consulting, uh, which I am a uh, graduate of, and and Caitlin was actually one of my instructors, um, and she's also the chair of the commission of the American Institute of Certified Educational Planners. So, Caitlin, thank you so much, and I will turn the floor over to you. Absolutely, thank you, thank you for the nice introduction. Um, and I know everybody out there, it's probably lunchtime. Um, um, I'm not sure if everybody's going to, are you going to be hiding 
um, participants or, or not, but, you know, uh, feel free to, to grab your lunch while you're listening to me. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. So as William um, um, introduced, uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about financial aid in general. I'm going to be talking a little bit about the specific forms uh, that families need to file for eligibility for financial aid. And I'm going to be talking about college affordability strategies that include building a list around merit money opportunities and touching just very briefly on outside scholarships. Um, as I mentioned to, um, and yes, and now, oh, there we go. As I mentioned to William, um, every single one of these topics I could spend an hour on. So I could talk to you for an hour about the, the financial aid formulas and who gets financial aid. Um, and how that differs from merit aid. I could talk to you for an hour on the actual applying process um, and understanding the forms involved. And I could talk to you for an hour about affordability um, in your college search process and outside scholarships um, and what I think about the current landscape and what we'll be expecting um, in the next three to four years. However, I only have 45 minutes because I also wanna leave some time for your uh, questions at the end. So um, as William is familiar, my lecturing style is a bit like a freight train, um, ask you to, to, to strap in and hold on while I get going. I do speak pretty quickly. So um, again, if you have questions at the end and need some clarity about something I covered, I'm happy to try to answer those questions. And I do know too that Strive for Learn is going to be sending out a copy of a PDF of these slides that I'm sharing with you today. So um, this information will be available to you after the um, webinar. Is that right, William? For Stripe to Learn, um, for Stripe to Learn clients, awesome. So these are the big areas that we're going to be covering. Um, and um, the first thing I want to really address is that for most of us who consult families, we really do look at uh, overall college fit um, um, through the lens of three distinct areas, one being academic fit, one being personal and social fit, and the other being financial fit. And, you know, they all come together in that perfect uh, access, hopefully, um, um, for um, your overall college um, um, fit and, and, and hopefully a number of good choices for you when you get to the end of, of senior year. Um, the question of who's eligible for financial aid, I want to address from the perspective of um, both merit aid and need-based aid. I think that the term financial aid has really come to represent, in many people's minds, the combination of the two. Um, and so sometimes I'll hear people say, we make too much to be eligible for financial aid. And that might be the case if you're talking just about need-based aid. But most people are also talking about merit aid when they when they when they say financial aid. And actually, um, many colleges will slip into this language of talking about financial aid that includes both the need-based financial aid process and merit aid. So, um, you know, in the in, in my generation, uh, we sometimes used to refer to merit aid as scholarship money, um, and scholarship money could be available from individual colleges and also from outside sources. So this, this merit aid, what I, which again, I think kind of falls under the financial aid umbrella, um, is um, 
predominantly available through colleges. And I think this is one of the things that families are surprised to learn. Um, so if you look at this here, what I'm saying to you is that 90% of merit aid comes from um, colleges. 10% comes from private outside community sources. So those are your outside scholarships. Um, we're going to talk just a little bit about that at the very end. How do you how do you pursue outside scholarships? What do you look for? Um, but um, you know, commonly these are, are scholarships that can be used um, at any of the schools you attend. Um, they do have to be disclosed to the college that you ultimately choose to attend. Um, and again, we'll have some some strategies for you around around how to look for those. But I know um, that in my private practice, and I think that Strive for Learn um, uh, approaches this in the same way, um, that we really focus our clients on um, a balanced list relative to merit aid possibilities if you are approaching college with a specific budget in mind. Um, and that is because of this, of this, this figure here, that 90% of the aid is coming, uh, that merit aid is coming from um, the individual colleges. Um, you'll see here that I have a, also another um, sort of percentage of grant money. Uh, so what's the missing portion? If I say 45% of, 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 of grant money comes from individual colleges and another 78% comes from community sources, where is the other portion coming from? And the other portion of grant money is coming from state and federal sources. Um, so um, it's a little bit different um, when we sort of when we use the term grant because um, some grants are need based. Um, so when we use the word scholarship, most of that scholarship money is coming from individual colleges. Um, so um, in some sense, all families can qualify for financial aid. It's important though to know when you're looking at affordability which schools don't provide any scholarship money. They only provide need-based aid. Uh, so here's a listing of a few schools that do not pro provide any merit money. I was cognizant of the fact that I'd be talking to uh, predominantly California families um, this afternoon, so I did throw in a few of the California schools. A number, a, a great, actually the majority, I would say, of no merit aid colleges do um, um, live in the Northeast. Um, and um, so there are fewer of these no merit aid schools on the West Coast, but Pomona is one of them. Pittster is a school with um, very little merit aid. Um, and I've given you a, a sampling here. Stanford also one with no merit aid except for some um, limited uh, athletes. Um, so it's important to notice as you head into uh, balancing your list and looking for the possibility of merit aid. I'll be frank with you. In, in working with my families, I will say that the majority of merit aid is coming from the bottom half of my students' list. It's coming from the schools where they are a good target fit or where the school is a likely fit for them, a likely admit. Um, because this, these are the schools where they are at the top of the applicant pool and the colleges want to uh, recruit them to campus. Um, again, we're going to talk a little bit more about that and how that fit works. But before we do that, I want to do do want to introduce you to need-based financial aid. Um, so, in order to be eligible for any need-based financial aid, um, you need to file minimally the the federal the free application for federal student aid. Um, this is um, 
required um, by all universities as a baseline, um, on top of which they might also ask you to file the CSS profile form or some of their own financial aid forms. Um, you will find this to be most often the case in private universities, but there are a number, number of public universities, University of Michigan, University of Virginia, have, have, have just introduced um, the CSS profile as part of their financial aid process as well. So that FAFSA is also um, um, needed if you intend to um, apply for um, student loans or parent plus loans. Um, it's also needed by um, all states for their own um, distribution of state funds. So I know in California you have the Cal Grant. We have something similar in Massachusetts um, as well. Um, so um, those state funds, um, uh, require um, the, the filing of the FAFSA as well. Um, these are the general areas um, that, that we group need-based financial aid, uh, grants and scholarships. And again, um, the, the most popular federal grant programs are the federal Pell Grants. And um, uh, there are also some unique federal um, grants um, geared towards um, students who tend to be teachers um, and, some other, and some other fields. Um, and then there's those school-based grants um, um, that um, can be um, need-based or merit-based. But the need-based grants, um, you, you need to have uh, financial aid forms on file with the colleges. Federal work study. Um, uh, I could ask for a raise of hands how many people had a work study job, how many parents in this, in this um, audience today are, ha um, had work study jobs in college. I know I did. Um, one of the things that's really wonderful about work-study jobs uh, on college campuses is they are, in fact, on the college campus. Students don't need to leave campus to um, work for 10 or 15 hours a week. Federal work-study um, wages are also not taxed. They're federal funds, so they're not taxed again. Um, and, and so the student receives the full hourly wage, and they can be used either for um, their tuition bills, their room and board bills, or, or in many cases, students will use federal work-study um, wages for their personal expenses and their books. Um, so that is um, um, a great opportunity to, you know, find something that fits your schedule. One of the things that I also talk about with parents is that work-study jobs allow your child to have another significant contact on their college campus. And we talk about how contacts on college campus is a minimum of three contacts on that college campus are essential to a successful transition um, and, um, and you know, matriculating through all four years. Um, oftentimes, the work-study supervisor can become a mentor to your student and be a really great connection. Um, you know, and I would say, too, that work-study supervisors are also very cognizant, clearly, of the academic schedule of finals week, of, of, of things that will come up that will make it more challenging for a student to, um, you know, maybe be there, you know, um, um, during those busy weeks, a little more understanding of and flexibility with hours and work-study jobs on campuses. And then loans. As I mentioned, even if you do not qualify for um, Grants or work study, um, which are you know funds that you're not paying back, or, or we call we call work study a self help. We also call loans self help, but um, many many families will um, not qualify for any other um, uh, financial aid, but want to take out parent plus loans or student loans. 
Um, and you can do that um, as long as you have filed the FAFSA. So that is really important. Um, so these are, again, I, I could spend an hour talking to you about the nitty gritty of all the details um, around uh, um, need-based financial aid. Um, the individual um, financial aid websites of the colleges that your students are applying to are great sources of information. I'm also going to give you a resource page at the end of the slide presentation um, for um, wonderful resources around filing the FAFSA, uh, filing the CSS profile. Um, so um, we will uh, we will have some of those resources for you as well. So one of the things that's really important to understand about qualifying for financial aid is that there are two significant pieces here to the formula. There's the cost of attendance, which I'm going to tell you about in just a second, and then there's the expected family contribution. So oftentimes I'll hear, see, oh, you know, uh, Cal State Fullerton didn't give my niece any money. We're not going to find that. We're, we're certainly not going to get any financial aid. Well, the problem with that statement is that you're only looking at your niece's experience with one college, and if you're a resident of the state of California, you're also talking about an in-state tuition um, situation where, you know, your, your niece's family might have made enough money to um, meet um, um, the, the, you know, the cost of education at Cal State Fullerton, let's say, as an example. Um, and so what you have to, to, to consider is, um, the individual costs of each college you're applying to, and then what um, the schools and the federal government um, decide you can pay. And so those are the two, the two big figures that we're going to look at. So the cost of attendance is the first part of this eligibility equation. And we look at direct costs like tuition and room and board, but we also look at books, fees, personal expenses, and travel to campus. I often will hear families say to me who are cost conscious, you know, I don't want to, I don't want my child looking at, um, in my case, I'm in the Boston area. I don't want my child looking at, you know, schools in California because that's going to be another $3,000 a year in travel costs. And what I say is, you know, if you're looking particularly at a private university, they are actually going to be building in greater travel costs into your total cost of attendance um, when they look at um, awarding you a package. Um, so don't let that travel cost initially sort of dissuade you from applying um, if you're on the, on the, on the edge of, a, of, of perhaps um, being eligible for financial aid. Understand that that is part of the, the, the metrics that the college is looking at. Um, the second piece is this, this expected family contribution. And this is also a quote that I hear a lot. Uh, I've, done my, I've done my initial um, expected family contribution calculation, and they say that we can pay $40,000 a year. I, we can't take that out of our annual budget. But here's the thing. The expected family contribution is based on what we call a three-legged stool. It's based on your ability to borrow, it's based on your current income and the sacrifices you're willing to make out of that income every year. And it's based on the assumption that you have done some savings for college, even if you haven't. That those are the assumptions that go into the formula. I always say, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> this, is, this is part of the formula. So um, this is a quote from the college board. Colleges and the government assume that the primary responsibility for paying for college is with the family and the students. So this expected family contribution is a combination of 
of guardian assets, family, you know, parent assets and income, and student income and assets. That includes both the student and the parents. Um, and the interesting thing about the financial aid formula is something that emerged about four years ago, which is a significant change in looking at income. The income that is going to be um, evaluated is what we call the prior prior year income. So the, um, let's use, for those of you who are listening today, if you have seniors, um, they are going to be entering college in the fall of 2021. The financial aid form that you are going to be filling out is for the academic year of 2021-2022. Do not fill out the 2021 form. You are going to be filling out the 21-22 form. Um, and that form is going to be based on 2019 income. Um, and that is because, uh, well, it used to be the prior year, there were a lot of, of, of issues around getting uh, families to file in time. Um, the form used to not be available until January. Um, now it's available in October. You can actually start filling this out as soon as you get your FAFSA ID this month. Um, so it, it makes it a lot easier to just be able to access that income information from 2019. You're actually able to download your tax returns um, with a direct retrieval tool. There's a lot of things that, that went into this change in policy. But the immediate question is, but what if I lost significant income, particularly in 2020? Regardless, a college is going to want to see where you were in 2019 if there's been a significant change in 2020, then you add, uh, then you give those colleges additional information. You 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 tell them about the change in circumstances. And there's a lot of of, of um, guidance around this, um, both on the individual again college financial aid um, sites as well as on the FAFSA um, government site. Um, but it's important to understand that this expected family contribution is not based purely on um, the income piece from last year, even though that's a big piece of it, it is also based on the expectation that you have been saving and that you're ready, ready to borrow. Um, so there are two types of expected family contribution formulas. One is what we call the federal formula or the federal methodology, and this is what uses the FAFSA. And again, um, um, there are, are um, thousands of schools that only require the FAFSA. And, and so it's, under, it's important to, uh, to look at what the possible differences are in just using a federal methodology versus um, looking at campuses that will use their own institutional methodology. Institutional methodologies are not the same from school to school. There's some baseline similarities. They're obviously looking at income and assets in the same way that the federal form looks at income and assets, um, but they might be looking at things a little bit differently. They might be taking into consideration home equity, which the federal form does not look at. They might be taking into consideration your educational costs uh, for younger children. Um, there are a whole host of things um, that institutions uh, that use their own methodology look at. Um, um, and some of the signif most significant ones are um, non-custodial parent income and the, and the home, home equity um, assets. So I'm going to go into that just a little, little bit more detail. Again, this is one of those topics, as you can imagine, I could spend an hour on. Um, but it's important to know that there are these two different ways of looking at expected family contribution. And I'm going to send you to a tool on the College Board site that allows you to look at both 
And I recommend that if you are applying to private universities that require some additional forms that do do their own institutional methodology that you do, take a look at what that could look like potentially for you. Um, so again, I'm not going to read through every single one of these bullet points. Um, you're going to have access to these slides, so I'm going to assume that you guys can read along. Here we go, though. We're going to talk about primarily that federal me methodology. Um, it looks at parent income to a maximum rate of 47% of your income after some allowances. So these are some pretty significant allowances. So I don't want you to think of, oh, I, I'm making $60,000 a year, and they're going to you know, immediately assess 30% of that. I mean, uh, thirty thousand dollars of that. There are some allowances that go into into that uh, calculation. Um, so that's a maximum rate. And then parent assets. Um, there's a protection allowance there, but we sort of give a ballpark of, of, of about between five and six percent um, of parent assets. You can see here that there's a significant difference between how parent assets are looked at and how student assets are looked at. So if your child has a savings account. Uh, with some significant savings in it. Colleges are going to look at that and say, you know, we're going to assess at least 20% of that every year because our assumption is that if your child is saved, they've saved for college. And that's going to be depleted down to nothing after five years in this assessment formula. Um, so, um, you know, sometimes we talk about, you know, if there's significant assets in a student's name, and I'm not talking about 529 plans, those are in your name, parent name, but um, if you're looking at, uh, you know, savings in a student's name, um, is it better to have it in a parent's name? You betcha, because it's going to be assessed at a, at a much lower rate. Um, student income is protected up to over $6,700 a year, so don't worry about your student having a part-time job. They have a they, I don't know very, very many high school students that can earn more than $6,000 a year. Um, so I don't worry too much about this, um, you know, for initial filing. Um, go ahead. If your student has a job, you know, absolutely let them work. Um, William, did you know that less than, um, I think this figure, that the last time I looked at this figure, less than 26% of, of, of uh, college applicants have had part-time work. So less, you know, about one in four have wow. had part-time work. Yeah. Um, and so it's actually kind of a, a, a more unique extracurricular activity than you might imagine. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think it's something that, um, you know, colleges, you know, clearly, I, I, I feel, look fondly on. You know, um, there are a lot of students that need to work to help support their own family. So, um you know, that's definitely something um, that, um, you know, um, we're not going to discourage um, students to do. So this is how the expected family contribution comes together in its most basic elements. Things that influence the, the family contribution or the expected family contribution are your income primarily, the size of your family, and how many of those children are in college at the same time. Um, your assets um, and um, the age of the oldest parent. And when I say assets, um, I'm uh, in the federal formula. I'm referring specifically to non-retirement assets. Um, so these are the things that will be will be asked questions about. Here are the things that that are not counted in the federal formula: home equity, the non-retirement uh, qualified retirement funds. Um, and again, there's a very modest protection table for um, um, non-retirement assets um, 
Uh, oh gosh, I can't. It's I, I I used to know this much much better by heart, but I, I feel like right now this is a this is a, the protection table was actually reduced quite significantly uh, five years ago. So I feel like a, the, the oldest parent is fifty five. That the the amount that's protected is less than forty thousand dollars. It's not a huge number, um, but these things um, are part of what what goes into the formula. Um, I do want to give you a few tips around filing the, the FAFSA. Um, it is available to you now. As, um, it opened on October 1st. Um, again, what you are looking for is that 2021-22 form. That's the academic year you're applying for financial aid for your child's freshman year in college. You are going to be filing every single year that they are in college. Um, you need to create a FAFSA ID. If you haven't created one yet, if this is your first time through the process, then you need to create one and so does your student. And then I would also recommend looking for, you can, you can Google this, look for the web, FAFSA on the web worksheet for the 2021-22 year. That will just give you an idea of what you have to have together, uh, put together by the, when you get, uh, get ready to, to file this online. Um, you know, these are just some reminders about um, um, the forms that you'll need to have. Um, one of the things that William and I talked about before I um, got online with you today is why is it important to file the FAFSA even if you know, even if you've determined that you won't qualify for financial aid or need-based financial aid? There are a couple of really good reasons. One, um, if you do decide that you need to take out a loan, you'll need a federal loan or, or a Parent PLUS loan. You'll need to have that. Um, that'll be a requirement. Even if you don't you know, qualify otherwise for need-based aid. Um, there are a few very, very selective um, school-based scholarships that do require the FAFSA, even if they are, um, you know, purely merit-based scholarships. These schools want to know, you know, more specifics about who they're giving their money um, away to, again, even if the scholarship is predominantly talent-based or um, merit-based. Um, and I say to all my clients, this is an insurance policy. If you have a significant change in income, um, the very first thing that the college is going to ask you for is your original FAFSA filing. They won't talk to you until you have a FAFSA on file. And then they're going to say, okay, now we can amend this with this new information about your loss of income. So um, you know already, again, if I'm talking to families here today who have had significant income loss in 2020, um, that 2019 income is going to look very different. You go ahead and file that, and then you reach out to the colleges individually and say, "Here's the scenario: we've had a we've had an income change, and they will have forms um, uh, for you to file uh, to fill out relative to those income changes." So that is why it is really um, important, uh, particularly in the first year that you have a student leave for college, that you file the form. You can file the form and just keep the information for yourself. You get a student aid report. Um, you can have that sent to yourself only and not sent to any, any colleges initially if you choose to do so. Um, this is what the financial aid uh, FAFSA ID site looks like. You, you are going to be first looking. Um, if you want to create this ID. It takes um, a few hours to a couple of days to get regenerated and back to you. And then after you've created the ID, you're going to be logging in 
to file the FAFSA. And note here that you are either going to choose that you are the student or that you are the parent. But um, those are two distinct FAFSA IDs that you need to be aware of. Um, I'm going to quick, quickly jump to this notion of institutional methodology. This is, again, the formula that many private colleges use, some scholarship um, funds use, uh, use the CSS profile as well. This is, as I said, in bold face here, used for colleges to distribute their own funds. You could have 10 different ESC calculations from 10 different colleges. You could have one college that uses uh, home equity um, fully in their calculation. You could have one, you could have a college that um, caps their home equity um, calculation um, based on your income. There are some colleges that, for example, might say, we're going to cap home equity at two and a half times the parent's um, adjusted gross income. Um, so there's so many different variations based on the, on the school's own priorities, on, on how they like to give away their own money. So keep that in mind. Um, some differences here about uh, parent income um, uh, relative to the institutional uh, methodology um, and parent assets. Um, again, I'm not going to dwell on these too much. You can look at the slides when um, we're, we're done with the presentation. But at the end of the day, we have the cost of the edu education, which could be $75,000 if you're applying to Boston University. What's the current cost of, 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 of education at, um, at Cal State? Roughly $30,000, So let's see. I want to say it's closer to the range of $25,000. $25,000. That makes sense. Yeah. So you can have, you know, again, you can have on the top end one of the most, you know, expensive private universities in the in, in the in the country, um, and on the bottom end you can have, you know, a you know much more affordable in-state tuition, right? Um, and if your expected family contribution is the same as that Cal State cost of attendance, you're not going to qualify for financial aid at Cal State Fullerton, but you might absolutely qualify for financial need. Um, and scholarship at Boston University or some other private university. I'm using that because it's in my backyard and it's the institution that I worked for for 10 years, so that's an easy one for me to say. So that's the biggest variant here is, is the cost of education and whether or not you're going to have need. Um, I also do want to drive home the point that income is the single biggest factor here in determining need. So what you've got here is three families that all have assets of $50,000 after retirement assets. Um, but the income here is different by a factor of, you know, two or three. And, and that, you know, then affects the, the expected family contribution. It's not the assets that's driving the difference in the, in the expected family contribution. It is the income. This is a simplified example using a family of four with the oldest parent of, of 48. Okay, I know there's probably some heart palpitations going on there right now. Um, <laughs> so you need to make a plan of action for um, making college affordable. Um, if you are, you know, you know you're working on from a budget, and you're looking at what you have in savings, what you're willing to take out of your income every year as your child leaves for college, um, and you're thinking about what you might um, be able to borrow. Uh, we always um, ask families to consider, um, you know, what their whole child brings to the table relative to what how, what they're going to contribute to these various college campuses. 
assessing the name of, uh, importance of name brand. You know, these the very the very most selective colleges in the country happen to be the ones that also do not provide uh, many do not provide merit aid. Um, go ahead, you know, make sure that you're aware of what your EFC is. Um, the best calculator is on the College Board. Just Google. I would give you the web web link. It's just so long. Um, but Google College Board EFC calculator, and you get it. And again, remember that this is a four, three part formula. Um, um, we ask you to, to um, get acquainted with net price calculators. Where do you look? Well, if, on one hand, you don't have to look if you're aware of the colleges that do provide merit aid as part of their their recruitment process. We call these recruitment awards. These are these are awards that you don't have to actually um, apply for. They happen in the admissions process, and I would say that 90% of college-based aid, and this, uh, uh, this is a rough estimate, is awarded at the time that the student is admitted without filing anything. And if you are a Strive to Learn client, they can help you identify this very easily on the tools that they use with their families. Um, I know that Strive to Learn uh, uses a tool called Guided Path with their families. The Guided Path has really easy um, um, visibility on the likelihood of your um, student getting merit aid at the colleges on their list. Um, but um, it's important to know that this happens automatically for so many of our students. Um, um, so what you want to do is also, um, if you're not a strike to learn client um, and you want to know how to do this on your own, um, the thing that we um, recommend is that you figure out what your EFT is and then go and look for the net price calculators at each of the schools that are on your child's list. This is a personal estimate of what your, what your family will pay for one year college at that specific college or university. Um, they can sometimes be a little hard to find. Um, the best way to find a net price calculator is just do a Google search. Um, this, I think, is for Clark University um, out in Worcester, Massachusetts. So, you know, we would have Googled Clark University net price calculator, and this is where we find it on their website. Um, you can also usually find it on College Scorecard um, for the individual schools as well. Um, and, um, you know, this gives you some tips on what to gather and be ready to use um, for those net price calculators. This is an, a sample of what a net price calculator might look like. Um, it will tell you for this college, I think this was a Denison, yeah, Denison University. We plugged in some, um, some factors here and they said this is the expected you know, family contribution very high. This is probably a family with an uh, adjusted gross income of over 200,000. Um, they have an expected family contribution of 72,000. And, you know, they're not going to qualify for need-based aid. But at Denison, when we plugged in all the other things about the student, Denison said, we're actually going to give you, probably going to give you $25,000 based on what you're telling us about your student's academics. Um, so that's part of what these net price calculators um, include is GPA and the rigor of the, of the courses the student is taking and test scores. Um, the one thing I will say is that there are some net price calculators that don't give you really good quality information. I'd rather have you go back to, uh, again, if you're working with Strive to Learn, to their tools. Um, school, the net price calculators that you have eight or fewer questions are asking you enough information. They often have this telltale icon, which is the federal net price calculator that's 
space and minimum that these schools are required to have on their websites. And um, it doesn't do a good job of actually calculating your merit aid possibilities. So do be aware of that. Learn to be a good net price calculator. Um, if you're a family with a sophomore or junior, um, this is a great way to incentivize your students on, you know, keeping their grades up. And um, even in this in this era of test optional, we don't know what it's going to look like in the next couple of years after this cycle. Um, you know, test scores can uh, and do affect merit money. Um, and I imagine that's not going to change dramatically in the next three to five years. I mean, we are going to see some 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 shifts without a doubt, but it's not going to happen overnight. Um, so, you know, look at, you know, how different colleges deal with home equity and the student information that you provide. Um, here's a sample. Um, again, you'll, you'll be able to look at this in the nitty gritty when you get these slides. I know I'm, I'm hurrying up, so there's time for, for questions and answers. But this just gives you an idea of um, a, a sample that we, we tried here um, in our office um, with a, you know, a phantom family um, and their assets and income, the student's academic profile. This is a top student, a straight A student with an unweighted uh, nearly 4.0 GPA. You know, there's some schools that gave them absolutely nothing. This was a student in Boston, so William and Mary Public University in Virginia gave them nothing. Um, you know, we had some schools that gave them more than $20,000 in grant money and others that, um, you know, gave them much less. Um, so, um, you know, very, um, that's what you need to do. Early, early bird catches the worm, start early. Um, think about um, how you um, can, um, you know, continue to boost your, your profile as a student. Um, I'm really talking to those now in the audience that are freshmen, sophomores, juniors. Um, and if you are a senior right now and you, you are a strong candidate, um, you had a pretty consistent academic career, you happened to test before COVID-19 shut that down, um, you know, the earlier that you, that you apply, um, the better your chances are getting of merit aid, certainly. Um, I don't want to scare those of you who aren't ready to do an early application. Um, January is still on the early side. I start to worry about families that are waiting until February and March. Okay, um, but um, you know, planning early also allows you to um, think about applying for some of these more competitive scholarships. Some of these schools do have competitive talent-based scholarships that might require the FAFSA profile. Um, they can also be attached to honors programs. Um, these are the scholarships that are often called the Dean Scholarship or the Presidential Scholarship or the Trustee Scholarship. They tend to be these premium level, often full tuition scholarships. Um, often at private universities, um, and they might require a different additional essays, additional interviews, additional pieces of the application. So, and last but not least, outside scholarships. I told you, you know, I don't spend a lot of time with this in my own practice, but in general, we say start local, move to state, move to national. Um, to be eligible for national-based scholarships, like a Coca-Cola scholarship or whatever you want. I had my daughter one year apply to the Nordstrom Scholarship just to see what it was like. Uh, as, I, as, I, as we got deeper into the, to the scholarship, we found out that there were actually 12 recipients a year, and there were 36,000 applications. Odds for that are not very good. Um, you're much better off um, building an affordable list based on merit aid at an individual college level, but also starting in your own backyard. You do have to reveal these scholarships to the, the colleges. In many cases, the scholarship check will be written to the college. So they will know about it. 
um, it may be deducted from your overall school package. All right. Um, you can appeal your um, uh, financial aid awards without, without question. You absolutely should let colleges know if there's been a change in financial circumstances. Um, and I'm going to give you, you know, I, I, I often um, uh, send, send families to tuition fit for a way to look at comparisons of specific school awards. Um, and Swift Student is a great resource for um, templates on how to um, appeal your award packages. And then here are the resources that I promised you. Um, again, you're going to get the, the PDF of this um, presentation, so you can, um, you know, don't worry about doing a screenshot or whatever. You'll get this later. Okay, <laughs> that was a lot of information in a very short period of time. Um, I think we have some time for a few questions. Thank you very much. That was so informative. Um, and we do have some time. <laughs> a lot. I know. Yeah. And I know there could be more. That's the crazy thing. But, but yeah, that was very well paced and, and you hit the mark. Thank you. Okay. So um, I'd like to invite anyone who does have any follow-up questions to use the chat feature on Zoom. Uh, if you just click on the chat icon, just go ahead and type your questions into there and, and we'll work on getting through all of those. Um, we have about 15 minutes. I do have a couple questions um, to start with in the meantime um, from, uh, from registrants. So you did touch on this a little bit in one of your last couple slides, but there's a question about admission periods. Uh, which admission period can I apply in to be eligible for financial aid from the college? Um, so are there any additional points you would make as far as the advantages of applying EA or EA? No, and it, yeah, that's great. It's a great question. It's one of the very specific reasons why the financial aid process was moved back and why it does rely on the prior prior period income because it was just a mess for families that were applying early action, early decision. And they would get sort of preliminary awards and, and it, 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 you know, it, it, it just was, it was cumbersome. So now there's really no limitation at all. You know, the, the CSS profile and the FAFSA are both available to you. On, um, and, and because it relies entirely on 2019 income, there's no guesswork. The one thing I will tell you as an additional filing hint is that you can't control the income from 2019. That's done, right? Um, but you can control the day that you choose to file. Um, it looks at, you know, the filing looks at what are the balances in all of your accounts, including your checking account. So if you get your paycheck at the first day of the month, don't file on the first day of the month. <laughs> file when your checking account is the lowest. I mean, I know that there's my checking account very, you know, it has a variant of many thousands of dollars over the course of the month. And that does go into the asset allocation, believe it or not. Um, if you're thinking of buying um, a new car, not to avoid financial aid, but because you need it, or you have some other large purchases that are coming up, do those before you file um, so that you are, you know, you're representing, you know, what is truly going to be your asset situation in the next couple of months. Um, um, so, um, but, you know, if you're applying early action or early decision in the first round, so for, for many schools, that's anywhere from October 15th to um, December 1st, um, you, are, you can hit those financial aid forms now. And in fact, I would encourage everybody to do it now. You know, um, again, there's really, there's no reason not to because we have the, the, the financial information, you know, the income information available. Um, so did I cover that fully? 
Very, very okay. good advice. Yeah, thank you. Okay, and um, another question uh, from Tiffany Harris. Um, I don't think I saw you today, but um, I'm thinking you'll probably watch this later. Hi, Tiffany. Um, is the FAFSA for state funds also? So I, I can share a little bit about California um, grants, but uh, just in general, Caitlin, is there anything you'd like to, to address? Yeah, I mean, I don't know of any states. I mean, I, I, arguably, I mean, my, my experience is pretty limited relative to that level of specific financial aid because I do work in Massachusetts. Um, but uh, I used to live in California, so you know, I am familiar with Cal grants as well. Um, I am not aware of, of any state funding um, system that doesn't require the FAFSA um, to be eligible for their funds. Yeah, absolutely. So that is for, for the Cal grant, um, there's, there are two steps really. The first is to file the FAFSA or for undocumented students, the uh, California Dream Act application. Um, the second step is to basically verify your high school GPA. There's a, a specific form that the uh, California State Aid Commission wants students to fill out and then to submit to their school office to have their GPA verified. Once the GPA is verified by filling out the form, you just submit it to basically just mail it to the California State Aid Commission. Um, I will in the in the chat, I'll go ahead and send the link to that website where, where you can find all the information about that. Um, that is for most schools within the state of California. There's a list of 10 schools that are do not use the Cal Grant, but they're basically all for profit um, and Bible mm -hmm. colleges and things like that. Um, mm -hmm pretty much all of the private colleges and universities in the state, in addition to the public colleges, will be eligible for Cal Grant, as long as you're going to a California school. Um, some schools automatically um, submit the verified GPAs to the commission. And if that's the case, then the student would not need to do that on their own. So that's something that I would maybe recommend to you parents to check in with, with your guidance counselor, find out if the school is automatically sending the verified GPAs to the California State Aid Commission. If that is the case, you would not need to do it on your own. However, if they are not doing that, you'd wanna to go to this link that I'm gonna send and, um, and download the, the verification form to fill out. Um, there's also a uh, the Chaffee grant, which is for uh, students who are in foster care between the ages of 16 to 18. And there's also a, a newer one called the Middle Class Scholarship. Um, and that is for students who are in their undergrad years and also for pr uh, pursuing a teaching credential um, for family income up to $184,000 and assets up to $184,000. Now, that is specifically for California public universities. So that would be for the Cal States and the UCs only, not for uh, private universities within California. You also brought up something that, you know, relative to um, asking guidance counselors for information about that reported GPA. In general, I find that, um, you know, families um, ignore the, the great resources on um, the um, guidance website, web pages of their high schools. Um, and, often, and I think sometimes particularly when they are working with a, a private um, educational consultants. And um, I, I find that local high schools are sometimes the best resources for what's available in local scholarship aid too. So if you really do want to go down the path of outside scholarship, um, oftentimes your, your high school guidance um, office is the best source for that information. Um, so, um, you know, just a quick run through of your own guidance, uh, guidance offices um, webpage might uncover some ad additional um, tidbits that um, you're unaware of. 
Awesome. Okay, and we have a question from Michelle. Do state universities, i.e. U of Washington, give away as much money as private colleges? And she gave Washington as an out-of-state example for us. Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Um, it, <laughs> it really depends on um, the institution. Um, so um, there, you know, there are about, I believe I just saw this um, listed, there are at least 12 public universities, flagship universities in the United States that have more than 50% of their students coming from out of state. And some of them are, are states that wouldn't surprise you because they simply don't have enough high school graduates living in their state to fill their, their seats. So like the University of Vermont um, has fewer than 25% of its students coming from the state of Vermont. So I find that with those universities that rely on out-of-state students to genuinely fill their classes, you're going to see a little bit more generous merit aid available um, uh, to out-of-state students. Um, I would say, by and large, you know, universities that have thriving uh, in-state populations, you know, as you know, the University of California has a limit on how many out-of-state students can come into California. The same is true for Virginia, North Carolina, Texas. Um, and so in these states where you have fewer than 10% of the students coming from out-of-state, you're likely to see um, less merit aid um, to recruit those students. Um, 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 to come to campus. Um, so that, that's just kind of a, a more rule of a thumb, but, you know, um, but that, you know, it brings up an interesting um, also dynamic around, um, you know, public versus private. I just encounter so many people that say, well, we can only afford in-state tuition. Okay, well, that's great, but that doesn't mean that you can't find a comparably cost education in a private university if, you, if your student is at the top of that applicant pool. You know, so for my families who attend um, UMass Amherst and are paying, you know, total cost of about $35,000 a year, um, you know, we have, we have them weighing similar kinds of costs with, with, some, with some private universities. Um, so it, it's, you know, it, it varies quite a bit based on, again, um, you know, how competitive your child is relative to that applicant pool. Um, for those colleges. A little Absolutely. off base there, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so we have a couple questions that are um, pretty similar. So um, I'm going to just read them both from Anna and Trina. Um, for the FAFSA, if I am divorced, do we include who my daughter lives with or does it matter? And another question, we have a divorced family. Do we only file with one parent's income? Um, so that has everything to do with what forms you're filing, right? So if you're filing just the FAFSA, it's the custodial parent. And if, you, if you're 50-50, you have to decide who's 51 and who's 49. If, this is, if, it's, if it's a school that um, requires more than the FAFSA, um, you, you know, you're going you're gonna to see that there is a whole host of additional information required. And this is where that EFT can be quite dramatically different between a college that only requires the FAFSA versus a, a college that requires more information. Um, so, you'll, you know, most commonly um, with um, those schools that are requiring a profile or their own financial aid form, they are looking for non-custodial parent income information. 
Um, again, they are looking at um, uh, house equ home equity. Um, they're looking at, um, you know, a lot more financial information. Yeah, absolutely. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the CSS profile uh, definitely requires multiple parents, uh, yes. non-custodial parents. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Question. Another question from Michelle. So if it sounds like she has signed up on the FAFSA as a parent, but can't figure out how to do the student sign up, do they need to sign the student up as a new user or through the already set up? Parent? They, need, they both need to have their own ID. With, attached to their own social security numbers. So do I have to, should I then apply for a, like as if we're just doing a whole new FAFSA ap application, um, just go to the FAFSA account and sign up my, my son and he's a student and they figure out that we're together? Yes. I mean, okay. you, do, you, do, you do include both. Because here's the thing, you could have multiple kids and each Gosh. child is going to have their own EFC calculation. And the reason for that is, is that each child could have different income and different assets. So this is actually one of the things that I, it's in the foot, it's in the slides and I kind of briefed and went, went over it a little bit. But when you're doing with a, a school that's FAFSA only, um, the FAFSA calculation basically takes um, the family contribution and divides it in half if you have two kids in college at the same time. And what they're dividing in half is the parent contribution. So let's even say you had twins. Um, and, um, you know, I have seen the EFC for, for twins show up slightly different only because one twin had a job or one twin had more savings than the other. And so it just it came out as a modestly different figure. But each child needs their own EFC calculation. So it's tied first to the student and second to the parent. Great. Um, couple, <laughs> couple more questions, just a couple more minutes here. Um, uh, okay, so when when should we sim submit the FAFSA? Uh, Whenever you're ready. Uh, Whenever you're ready. Um, uh, the FAFSA is definitely the easier of the two forms, so it's the best one to get started with. If you have to do both, you wanna you wanna get uh, do that one first. Um, that'll be your warm up. Um, you know, the profile does ask for a lot more information. Um, um, I, let me piggyback on my comment about the FAFSA dividing the, the, the EFC equally if there are two children in college at the same time. Um, the general rule of thumb for the EFC um, division, if it's an institutional methodology, is 60%. So it's 60% per child, um, and then it's 40% for three. Um, so if you kind of do that calculation, you're basically, you know, if you have two kids in college at the same time and they're both institutional methodology, um, it's 120% of a single EFC, um, it, which is kind of, it, it's kind of crazy. But um, again, it, it, it does mean that, you know, that demonstrated need could look very, very different between schools that require only the FAFSA and schools that require additional information from the profile or their own forms. I haven't come up with a way to really describe that dynamic well. <laughs> um, it's kind of crazy. Um, anything else? Okay, uh, do you have time for one more? 
question? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, so um, a follow-up to the question about filing as um, with uh, divorced parents, divorced family, is it better to use the divorced parent that has less income or less savings and assets? What do you think? If that's the custodial parent, absolutely. Absolutely. But that's going to come back at you if it's a school that requires the profile. I mean, it, 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 that, you know, the, the non-custodial parent um, will be revealed um, and, um, for, for a college that requires um, the profile in, in their own forms. Great. Okay. Okay, well, thank you oh, so yeah, much. You, you got me just to the edge of my comfort zone with knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, it so was hopefully this knowledge. was helpful. It was a wealth of knowledge. It was very helpful. Um, thank you so much, Caitlin. Really a treat to have you um, share with us all. And um, thank you all who tuned in. Um, and just, uh, just so everyone knows, on the horizon, we are going to have a part two of the financial aid webinar series. Uh, more information to come about that. Um, but again, thank you so much, Caitlin, and, and thank you. Tom. Absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. As we continue to produce episodes of this podcast, you can follow along on our website, www.strivetolearn.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for future episodes and don't forget to subscribe. As we're launching this podcast, we'd appreciate any support you can give, including likes, downloads, shares, and good reviews. Got something you want to learn about? Ask us questions in the comments or DM us on Instagram at Strive to Learn Tutoring. Get the latest updates in the college admissions world and be the first to receive exclusive offers when you subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, www.strivetolearn.com. Thanks for sticking around, and I'll see you next time.